What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And before we start another episode, I just have a few announcements for you all. First, remember to register for Courageous Conversations. It's August 1st and 2nd in Atlanta, Georgia. Early bird registration is available to June 1st. We have room blocks available, so make sure you go to Courageous Convos, Courageous, C-O-N-V-O-S dot org. Also, we have merch available. People have been asking us for Jew3 apparel. Now it's there. If you go to Jew3project.com, you can get a hoodie, you can get a t-shirt, we even got a coffee mug for you. So check it out at Jew3project.com. And thank you for all of those who partner monthly with us financially. We could not do what we do without people like you. And for those who aren't a financial partner with us, please consider becoming one. Pray about it. You could give whatever you have, 5, 10, 15. We have some people that give a dollar. Whatever we you have, it helps us um, with the mission and vision of the Jew 3 Project and helping black Christians know what they believe and why they believe it. So without further ado, let's get into the next episode of our podcast. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. The Jew 3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by another special guest, uh, Bishop Dr. Uh, Emilio Alvarez. How are you doing? I'm well, Lisa. How are you? I'm good. It's good to see you again. We met in New York um, at an event honoring uh, the late, great Dr. Thomas Oden, um, and we had a chance to um, talk, and I was like, oh, I would love to get you on the podcast because you have a very unique perspective that I think oftentimes we don't don't think about, and so uh, I'm glad to have you on today. For those who don't know who you are, give them just a little bit of background. Well, first and foremost, thank you so very much for this invitation. I'm actually so excited to be on this podcast with you. And by the way, you were stellar. Some of the questions and some of the answers that you provided us there at the Thomas Oden uh, Symposium were wonderful. Um, Well, Emilio Alvarez, uh, I am the Bishop Ordinary of the Diocese of Christ the King. It's a non-geographical diocese uh, made up of Afro-Latino charismatic churches who are recovering uh, classical consensual orthodoxy or the Christian great tradition, historic Christian great tradition. Um, I was raised in Patterson, New Jersey, born in Puerto Rico. Uh, I have five sisters, two brothers, uh, been married for 20 years, have three beautiful children, uh, Eli, Xiomara, and Lucas, to my beautiful wife, Denine Alvarez. And uh, did my bachelor's in Christian education, my master's of arts in religious education at New York Theological Seminary, and then my PhD at uh, Fordham University in religious education. I am currently the rector at the Gathering Place, or the Cathedral at the Gathering Place where love meets in the beautiful but cold city of Rochester, New York. Um, my passion is for uh, Afro-Latino charismatics. Um, and uh, the contextuality, of course, is the recovery of classical consensual teaching. That's awesome. Um, you're up there with our good friend Esau McCauley. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with him, but he teaches at Northern uh, Northeastern Seminary up there uh, in Rochester. It is 
indeed cold. Um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's sunny in Florida, so uh, oh, I, I don't envy you. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the places we one of when we met, uh, we were talking about um, the whole thing around Thomas Odin was his um, expo- exposure of the contribution of Africans um, in Christian history. Why was that important for you? It's important for me, I believe, uh, because it it has a sense of continuity and connection. And I think that a lot of Afro-Latinos miss that link. I think there is um, not a bridge um, when we when we talk about historic Christianity, when we talk about it from the perspective, it seems always to be Eurocentric. And so it's important for me because it really provides us the connection and the continuity um, in, in relation to the early church fathers, the early mamas of the church, some of who were African, uh, people of color. And uh, relatability, I think, would be the last key for me. It, it really does have to do uh, with relatability. Um, when we look at some of the, the, the history of Christianity in America and um, the claims that were made, right, that you and I both know that um, Christianity was brought to Africans um, through slavery. Um, we go all the way back to some of the church fathers and realize, mm, no, that's not true. Um, you know, Christianity was in Africa before it was in America, period. <laughs> um, so that's why it's very important. I think a sense of connection, continuity, and relatability. I think that's helpful. Um, when we talk about, before we get into uh, the Afro-Latina um, distinction, um, just let our audience know what would what would be categorized as Afro-Latina and the history behind it. So Afro-Latino, um, in, in, my, in my context, Afro-Latino Paleo-Orthodoxy or Afro-Latino Pentecostal Orthodoxy um, has really to do with Afrocentrisms in relation to Christianity, both historically um, and presently. And so it's a combination or amalgamation of how did Africans and Latinos um, practice or come to come to the knowledge of Christ, practice the spirituality of Christianity back then, and how do we continue to practice that now? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, a, there is a connection. So that definition is um, very much... Um, uh, inclusive of both historic but also modern practices of spirituality within the culture of African Americans and or Africans and Latinos or Latino Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, who would fit as Afro Latina? Um, because some people don't even know that that <laughs> that <Yeah. exists. laughs> So Afro Latino, uh, for example, I'm a good example of Afro Latino. Um, I have, I, I was born in Puerto Rico, but uh, my family roots are also uh, to some extent African, right? So Afro-Latino is uh, an individual persons who have Afro-Latino uh, descendants who can be Africans, Latino, African-Americans, Latino-Americans, or have that amalgamation within their uh, genes, within their history. Um, And when we talk about Afro-Latino Pentecostal Orthodoxy or Paleo-Orthodoxy, what we're really referring to is those individuals who, from that vantage point, practice the historic Christian faith. 
Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And yeah. how do they come to know um, faith um, in their context? You know, we, we can take these roots all the way back. I mean, uh, even today, I was actually doing a study on the uh, incarnation of Athanasius. And um, it was interesting to read Athanasius, right? Here's this church father who is the champion of orthodoxy, right? Who, who almost single-handedly takes on Arianism in 325 and the Council of Nicaea. And yet people kind of forget that his enemies had a nickname for him. He was called the Black Dwarf. You know, he was, he was small in stature, but he was definitely someone of color. Um, And this was back in 325. If we want to take it even back, we go back to the Gospel of Mark. And there in the Gospel of Mark, we read um, that both Pentecost and the Lord's Supper was happening in Mark's mother's house. And when you do the research, as you know, Thomas Oden has done some of that research, you start figuring out that these this house is an African house that they have actually moved from Africa back to that area um, of Jerusalem there. But they're an African household. And so we see that even Africa is represented um, in the Lord's Supper and at Pentecost. It's the same house. And so I think that it goes way back to say that we Afro-Latino Pentecostal Orthodoxy or Afro-Latino um, uh, Paleo-Orthodoxy has its roots in any kind of enslavement um, just does not make any historical sense. And those who try to perpetuate that narrative are really ahistorical and really do a disservice to history. Mm-hmm. What are um, some things that you think African-Americans miss when thinking about Afro-Latino and the Christian faith? Okay, so I think that we, I think part of our um, deeply rooted um, biases include what's called the cathophobia, right? I I call this the the great cathophobia, which is, oh, that's Catholic. Um, Oh, that's Catholic. If, if, If we see the Eucharist celebrated or communion every week like we have it here, oh, that's Catholic. Um, if we see someone with robes, oh, that's Catholic. Um, I think we miss it. We, we miss it and we miss the treasures old and new um, of the great Christian tradition when we are quick without research or without any kind of knowledge to acknowledge or to pinpoint or identify something as Catholic. We miss it for ourselves because it's part of our own heritage. I think a lot of African-Americans and Latinos in our charismatic churches or evangelical Pentecostal churches, they really don't have a sense of history and they really don't understand that it wasn't until 1054 that there was this great schism between the East and the West and that the West really formally took on Roman Catholic. But that for a thousand years, the church was one. And within that thousand years, the church practiced things like Eucharist or communion every week. That wasn't a Roman Catholic thing. That was a church thing. It was a Christian thing. It was a believer's thing, especially in Africa. Um, So, you know, African councils, even before 325, set up the Council of Nicaea and the preceding councils, because there were some African councils that preceded those that actually um, provided the patterns for the great ecumenical councils. So I think we, one of the areas where we miss it is for us to continue to identify this as, oh, Catholic, 
Um, I think we miss it without doing the research. Um, and we, we play into this divisive narrative of us and them. And I think we see that even in the social climate as well. Mm -hmm. That's hopeful. Um, when we think about uh, in the African-American space, there's Christianity is the white man's religion. Uh, do you see similar things in the Afro-Latina space? Um, to be called to Afro-Latino Pentecostal orthodoxy is a call. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a particular call towards um, an expression of Christianity um, that includes this kind of shift away from a maybe classical Pentecostalism towards a more neo-Pentecostalism that is open to the work of the spirit at a broader level. Now, the reason I say that is because Robert Weber says something very interesting. He says that three, there are three levels of faith. There's, own, there's borrowed faith or familiar faith. That's the faith that you received from someone else, your pastor, your grandmother. There is searching faith. That's the faith that you're searching. And then there's own faith. Now, the, the reason for me bringing that up is that your question um, is very much emblematic of a lot of individuals that I see that come to me and that write me that are um, still enculturated with borrowed faith. And that borrowed faith sometimes says, oh, Christianity is a white man's religion. And I'm like, mm, mm, no, no, it's not. And it takes me then um, some time to bring them into searching faith, um, for them to search the scripture from a um, Afro uh, or Latino lens. And to be able to go, no, no, let's go back to the scriptures and let's look at them through these lens, through our cultural lens. And then let's look at history the same way. And it's not only it's not until they get into owned faith um, that they begin to understand that, no, Christianity is not the white man's religion. Uh, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. That's helpful because I think. Um you kind of make the distinction there. I think automatically when people hear that, they feel like they have the, that it's the time to give them all the historical data um, to help this, uh, refute their claim. It seems like your approach is a little different. Yeah. And you know, the, 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 I think that for us in kind of the charismatic Pentecostal world, there's such an emphasis on the experiential um, concept, right? That orthopathy. Um, and, and I don't know that propositional thinking is always um, the very best. There's a, there's a phrase in Latin, lex orendi, lex credendi, lex vivendi, right? The, the law of worship is the law of belief, which is the law of living. And in the early church, it was the experience of worship, right, which produced the theology, which the theology then produced the living. And so for these charismatics and Pentecostals, what I'm finding out is that in, in Pentecostal or Afro-Latino Pentecostal orthodoxy is that they, they, they value the experience, then the theology, then the living. And so when in, in speaking to individuals about uh, whether this is a white man's religion, um, what we try to do is bring them to the experience of culture in in the Bible, um, the experience of culture in history. Um, and then I, I do think that we talk to them socially because there is a lot of white normative lens through which we as African-Americans and Latinos 
look at Christianity. And so we do some of that as well. Mm-hmm. People are listening and saying experience is problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. the reason they think that is because experience has been misleading in so many other spaces. I think about um, how people that identify as Mormons say that they believe that Joseph Smith is a true prophet by right? a, a sensational experience that almost sounds like a charismatic experience. Um, mm-hmm. How do you make the distinction there for people to know that, you know, for them to have the balance of experience and understanding of one's faith? Well, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I go back to, I believe, um, my religious educational roots, right? And I go back to um, Dewey. Uh, John Dewey. And John Dewey says that every every experience is either educative or miseducative. And it's miseducative if it has no continuum, no continuity. It's educative if it has continuity to it um, because of its insertion, its amalgamation with levels of content um, and education. And um, one of the ways that I utilize this is um, the Emmaus Road, right? The disciples on the road of Emmaus. And they're on their way. They're restrained from knowing Jesus. And they're on their way. And as they're on their way, they're listening to Jesus speak. Um, and they get to the house. And when they get to the house, they beg him to stay. And he breaks bread and he disappears. And then they say, did our hearts not burn? Now, all of this time, they have not understood anything. They, they are in the dark. They do not understand. But one thing they did was experience. The experience was there before their understanding. Um, and because of that, there's a, there's a wonderful phrase that continues to be used, the breaking of bread. When he broke bread, the writer there is very intentional. And in Acts, all you see is the breaking of bread every day, the breaking of bread every day, daily from house to house and the breaking of bread. And I think that there is a continuum there because there was an education through an experience. Um, If I had to say one more thing about that, it would be that I think experiential um, concepts or experiential education um, in relation to Um, uh, propositional theology. Um, I see it as, you know, propositional theology is faith-seeking understanding, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if you talk to a lot of millennials today, they don't want to understand. They they just do not want to understand. If you read any Michael Smith book and you read on moralistic therapeutic deism, um, one of the big issues with millennials today is we don't understand. You know, everything that you're saying is sitting up here in some kind of academy setting and we don't get it. But we do want to experience. We do want an experience that marks us. Um, and so I, I, I really have kind of termed religious education as faith seeking experience, if that makes any sense. So I would say that experience, experience is valuable when you have continuity continuum, when it's educational. But it could also be miseducational. And if it's miseducational, it has no continuity to it. Yeah, I do think there is a sense of um, an experience to go along with the information that's needed in this day uh, because people are dealing with some uh, very interesting things. And um, it was funny that there's a push and a move uh, that my friends were telling me in in Haiti and in other spaces. And there's a push even from African-Americans 
to go back and deal with like uh, more so the occult and witchcraft and getting mm-hmm. into that because they think it's the religion of their ancestors. So they want to connect back to that because they feel like um, whiteness has stripped that away from them. Um, mm. And so there is a sense of them. I was talking to a, a girl that's come out of that and she was talking about the supernatural stuff that she's seen and um, experienced. And it was funny because one of my friends that actually grew up Baptist was like, I sent her to a Pentecostal church because the stuff she was dealing with, I couldn't, I, we don't even, we haven't even heard of that. Uh, <laughs> She was like, she was saying dead people doing stuff, and it was just all kinds of things. Um, and he was like, I knew that the, my uh, Baptist church couldn't handle that. She needed something, an experience of power to, <laughs> to coming out of that and trying to walk the Christian faith. So uh, uh, that is a, a real a sense of people trying to people are messing with the occult and demonic, and so. Right. Um, sometimes those who don't believe uh, in the gifts uh, have a hard time navigating space. Have you seen that? I have. I have. Uh, actually, I, I have. A, I have. A, I have an interesting story and a confession. I'm at the church here. I'm at the cathedral, so I might as well confess. But I, I, I did uh, when I was younger. Oof, way younger. I, I looked into. Uh, the Yoruba traditions. I looked into uh, these African traditions, which have Hellenistic backgrounds. Um, I looked into all of that. Um, When I was younger, um, I was so tired of the propositional thinking of you have to understand, you have to do, you have to do, you have to do, that it was very much me looking for an experience. And even as working as a religious service provider for, um, you know, the Department of Homeland Security, um, I've seen um, these elements of our Yoruba African traditions and people, a desire to return back to that uh, because they do sense that in a way, you know, America has kind of whitewashed religion um, and that in a way Christianity is brainwashing um, believers and, um, and and it has to do with that propositional understanding or propositional theology, I believe, um, which we don't always get correct. Uh, and they're, they're wanting to leave that and find fresh, fresh expressions of a religion that makes sense, that connects with my culture, but that also has sensibilities for my orthopathy. Now, this is important, Lisa, because... Um, I think it's John Wesley, which is the religion of the heart, the orthopathy, and um, Dr. Runyon, who who stress the orthopathy, the 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 correct feeling, right? Um, and we haven't paid attention to this as much. I think that our shouts, our dances, our hoops, our hollers, um, and I do that at at our local church. Uh, we are as charismatic as they come. and uh, But I think that they are something that happens to us as an experience that is limited to the four walls. And I also think that we have not seen them as education. What really happens to us educationally when we have these experiences? And that's the question that I've been researching now for about a year. What happens to the believer 
what happens to the preacher when the preacher is hooping? What happens to the believer when the believer is taken up by the spirit? What happens when we shout? What happens when we dance? There has to be something occurring more than just the present experience. It has to be an educational tool. The Holy Spirit has to be teaching us something. Um, and I think that if we get back to trying to understand and experience at the same time uh, that phenomenon, um, we will better take hold of our belief instead of saying, oh, we're whitewashed or brainwashed or whatever, what have you. Mm -hmm. But that makes no sense. Yeah. When we're talking about, because uh, I've been actually wanting to have a conversation about this because I've had so many millennials um, hit me up about the fact that they, you know, dealt with stuff like roots. Uh, I have some Haitian friends who are dealing with that. Um, one one guy met in um, Chicago last year, his father is a Haitian pastor. And he was telling me all the stuff that they had seen, like bed shaking, like stuff I couldn't even really fathom. Um, <laughs> and I, he was dead serious. And so, yeah. um, so as we're thinking through this and people are dabbling in this, um, what was, it, as you say, you dabbled in it yourself. What was kind of helpful for you to get out of those things? Well, you know, as a, as a very young man trying to search or searching, um, I had a very clear encounter with, um, with God, a very clear encounter that broke kind of my uh, world narrative in relation to what I thought was truth or not truth. In particular, when I started looking into these Yoruba traditions. And um, I will always remember, this was so insane. And I'll say this, and I can't believe I'm doing this on live TV, but I'll do it anyways. So anyways, so um, this, uh, this guy came up and, you know, this Babalao, um, he's a, a priest in kind of the Yoruba traditions. And he says, well, I need you to sacrifice a chicken and honey and rum because you have a whole lot of problems. And so I'm a young man. I'm not married. I'm, and, um, you know, I'm a preacher's kid, by the way. So that doesn't make it any easier. <laughs> um, but I'm living on my own. I'm a preacher's kid. And at this time, I did just that. I, I went, got a chicken, got rum, got uh, honey, and came to this spot. It was here in Rochester, actually. And, um, and so I literally saw this guy take the head off this chicken and um, have me hold it, pour rum uh, or honey on it and spit rum out to this, you know, big statue of this deity. And um, I was supposed to repeat the words or the phrase, I give you this offering so that you can help me with my problems. I'm supposed to do that three times. So I did it twice. About the third time when I did it, I heard a voice. Clear as day, as, as you and I are talking, I heard a voice. And I know that I'm probably going to get into theological problems with whether you hear an audible voice or an inner voice. That doesn't matter. I heard a voice. I know what I heard. And it said, why are you sacrificing this to that when all you have to do is ask me for help? I heard it clear as day. 
And it stopped me in my tracks. Here's, here's this mantra going on all around me. And it stopped me dead in my tracks. So I told the guy, hey, I have to go. And he said, no, don't go. Um, you have to throw this chicken in the, the ground. You have to bury the ground. and You have to dig up the ground, throw it in the ground. And, and so I said, yeah, 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 yeah. And I took the chicken. And I remember I was so shook because I knew it was God. I was so shook and so scared that I kept looking around to see if God was going to hit me with a lightning bolt or something. And I remember I took the chicken and I threw it in a garbage can. I was supposed to dig it in the earth and I threw it in a garbage can. I went home uh, that day. I was supposed to get um, uh, to work on time. I took a shower and while I'm taking a shower, I start singing my old school church songs. Now I am as, I'm progressive, I'm modern, I'm contemporary, but I've never forgotten those old school church hymns and songs. And here I am in my, in my bathroom singing these old school church hymns and songs, and I had just gotten out of a seance, right? And here I am crying, and I'm like, nope, nope, I'm not going to do this. God, I'm not coming back to you. I'm not doing this. I've suffered under your hand as a kid. Needless to say, I went to work. And when I went to work, I told my manager, I was a cook at a restaurant. And I told my manager, put up the, the radio. I want to hear the radio just really loud because I didn't want to be in my own thoughts. And so Puff Daddy is playing and I'm, Biggie's playing, you know, 1996, 1997. And I'm just cooking away. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, that's the year that Fred Hammond's No Weapon came on. And it was on the radio consistently. And I remember plain as day that when the song came on, I felt a warmth just hit me and come down. And I heard the same voice that I had heard earlier tell me, I love you. And it just kept saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I had a nervous breakdown or whatever it was that I had a, 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 an experience with God on that day. And I remember that since that day, um, I knew God was more, was realer to me then than he had ever had been. Um, and so I, I really do thank God for the old school hymns, teachings of, of my mother and my father and my grandmother. Um, but I thank God for the experience when I could not understand, I could at least experience. And that's, that's what helped me um, to be able to um, follow God more closely away from these other paths. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And I love that you shared that, you know, you had, you felt like when God was calling you, uh, that you had suffered under his hand enough as a, as a child, because I think a lot of kids of people that have grown up in church, like yourself and myself and been in church all the time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if there's no conversion, there's resentment. Yeah. And um, I'm a PK as well. So I know a lot of pastors, kids. I know a lot of people that just grew up in church and their parents had them in church all the time. And they go from, uh, they go to resentment and then that leads them into what you're talking mm -hmm. about, experiences with uh, the occult and yeah. different things, or just jettisoning the church altogether and no spirituality. Um, what would be your message to them? My message to them would be to, I think that there's a level of resentment there. Um, I was very rebellious and very resentful 
And it wasn't so much about God, but it was about how they introduced me to God. Um, how they told me I had to love God. And how they really told me that this is the only way God will love you. Um, and that did a lot of damage to me um, when I was growing up. And I think that my, my, if I had anything to say to that generation and to those types of individuals, it would be that first and foremost, you have to make the distinction between um, what hurt you and who God is really. Um, what experiences you went through based on the borrowed faith or the familial faith that you were born into. And really the full expression of God's love. And I could not make that because I was rebellious. I was running. I was fighting. And so put down the fight. Stop fighting. Stop being rebellious. And, and then make the distinction. Because you can't make the distinction as long as you're angry. And a lot of us, we grew up angry. We grew up angry. And so our anger was what pushed us towards things like the occult, right? It's like that preacher that gets up and says, you're going to hell. If you don't get saved, you're going to hell. And I come to God, not because I love God. I come to God because I'm going to hell and I'm afraid of going to hell. And the question I've always had is, well, did you really come to God? And I think that that's what happens with some of us. We're angry. And so because we're angry, we, 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 what did Martin Luther King say? That riots are the language of the unheard, right? We, we then act out and we go do things on purpose to hurt those or to disagree with those who had a different view. And I think that once we get over the rebelliousness, the anger, the acting out, we can come to a place of center and be able to really ask God, will you help me experience you in the fullness of your love? And then look for individuals that don't necessarily prescribe to your tradition, but there's another tradition. There's another way of being religiously in the world in terms of the Christian tradition and the faith. One of the things that I've encountered, and this is the last thing that I say that I'll tell you about that, is that... Um, I missed the church when I was searching. I missed it. Oh, I missed it. I, I sung the songs still and didn't go to church, didn't angry, but I sung the songs. I missed it. I missed the preaching. I missed the teaching. And I know that there's a part of everyone who's listening, who's under the sound of my voice, who's going through this, that they miss that. They have that void. But stop being angry, give up the rebelliousness, get to a place of center, look for other people outside of that particular tradition, and then ask God to really give you an experience of himself and go from there. Mm -hmm. I think that's helpful as you're talking. I'm reminded of in the book of Ezekiel, and um, there, there's a sense that the people are rebelling because they're disappointed with what God yeah. is allowing. And yeah. um I, I just think that's where a lot of Christians are, um, people that have been in church their whole life and they start to get into things and do things because they're disappointed with the ways in which they thought God was supposed to act in their life. Yes, and, um, and I think that's so crucial um, to, to ministering to people today. Like yourself, I grew up in the Pentecostal tradition, still in that tradition, PK. So I know been in church all my life. I've seen the gamut of experiences. And 
I know some of the disappointment that comes along with what you see sometimes in different spaces, what you see in people, and you start to equate that to God. And so it's important that we um, make that distinction because we never want um, our view of God to be tainted um, because simply we're thinking that people are are the lens in which we view God. And, and you know, uh, a greater, a greater, uh, another point, if I may, Lisa, and I hope I'm not taking up too much of your viewers' time, but it, no, I good. think that it, it goes even deeper than some of us going out looking for um, things like the occult, right? It, it, that exists. But even at another perspective, I think that there's even some of that brought into the church um, because we're not happy in dealing with some of the issues um, properly. And one of the examples that I always give is this whole concept of, and I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for it, but this whole concept of generational curses, which is just an insane, um, I mean, mind boggling. Every time I hear a preacher preach on generational curses, I, my mind is boggled. I'm, I'm immediately stupefied uh, because not only of the lack of biblical um, evidence for, um, you know, generational curses, but also the historical uh, usage of curses and, and, and the way they try to preg, pe- peg this on Afrocentrisms and, and Latino culture um, perpetuating the curse of Ham. Um, you know, that whole notion, that Eurocentric notion of the curse of Ham. And this is why. And, 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 and in essence, you know, we see some of this in the church fathers, except for Gregory of Nicinius, I think that, you know, the church fathers, they were not all against um, slavery because they saw it as sinful. They saw it as, oh, that's a consequence for your sin. But when you see and you read Ezekiel 18 and in Ezekiel 18, you know, the fathers or the the children are asking, hey, man, you know, our fathers ate the sour grapes, our teeth are, you know, on edge. And God says, wait a minute. No, no, you will never use that proverb again. Don't ever use it. Right. The father that sins, he will die. The son that sins, he will die. It's individual no longer with the father's sin or the son's sin kind of co-mingle with each other. And so I think that we it's not only that we sometimes get angry and go out looking for but i think it's also we get angry and bring into the church um levels of the occult levels of things that have never existed uh that generational curse situation that never that's never existed in the life of the church uh, when you look at you know the church from a continuity perspective everything everywhere always and by all it has never existed and it's something that has been utilized by um, the Eurocentric powers that be to continue to kind of perpetuate, you know, that we're lesser than everyone else. Um, so I think that we have some of that going on as well. Mm-hmm. And I think what what uh, people are articulating, I love the point about generational curses. Love that you're in the book of Ezekiel is my favorite book of the Old Testament. So okay. uh, anytime anybody references it, uh, <laughs> I, lo- I love it. I've read it over and over again. Uh, but one of the things I think people are articulating when they talk about generational curses is they're seeing repetitive behavior throughout generations. And what I've, I was just talking to a friend about this a couple of weeks ago. And what I think it is, is generational unforgiveness, because I believe that bitterness allows you to take on the identity of those who offended you. Mm-hmm. And so your father, because I've noticed trends that people become what they hate. 
Right. And so I don't know necessarily if it's generational curses as it is bitterness taking root to make you duplicate what you hate. So you're running so you're trying so hard not to become it that you actually become it. And so people assume, oh, it's a generational curse. But in actuality, it's just that bitterness has taken root mm-hmm. and caused you to duplicate the behavior that you've already seen. And yeah. 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 And, and I mean, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. And, and and let's make sure that we include generational habits. <laughs> oh, I'm broke because my mama was broke. Well, I mean, if your mama didn't teach you about money, ta-da, you're, you're going to be broke. If they didn't teach you about credit scores. And sometimes I tell you know, our people here at the cathedral, I said, you don't have a generational curse. You have a generational excuse. And, and we keep utilizing it so that we don't have to own up to the practical, um, habitual um, demands, relationships, what have you, uh, uh, unforgiveness that we are to wrestle with. Um, so I agree wholeheartedly. What would you leave uh, with? What would be your last words and what books would you recommend that people who are listening uh, read that have been helpful for you? just thinking about Afro-Latina and Christianity? Well, um, I would say um, maybe one of the best books out there is uh, Thomas Oden's uh, How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind. Um, That was a game changer for me. Um, There are some other books on Tertullian by David White that we met there at the Thomas Oden Symposium. Um, Libyan Christianity by Thomas Oden, but I think how Africa shaped the Christian mind really got me to go, ooh, wait a minute. Um, Wow, there's some color to our church history. Um, And I think my parting words would be that to those who are sensing, even today, um, every morning I get up now, Lisa, I have about maybe... I don't know, maybe five emails, six emails, eight emails from clergy all over the country who are asking questions on spirituality. There's a, a, a sense, right? Um, I believe globally, particularly for African-Americans and Latinos who are beginning to go, there has to be something more. We sense it, right? And that something more for them is returning back to the great tradition of the church the historic great tradition. And I would say that if you are one of those who are sensing this in the African-American or Latino tradition, charismatic, Pentecostal, evangelical, um, that you're being called to what I believe is um, one of the greatest renewal movements, I believe. Um, I was just at the Joint College of African-American Pentecostal Bishops um, Two weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, uh, I was teaching um, their senior class. It was an honor for me to teach my brothers and my sisters there. I um, uh, was there with the Metropolitan Jay Delano Ellis. And it, it is always astonishing for me to see African-American um, Pentecostals, Baptists, Evangelicals, United Methodists, men and women want to return back kind of um, to the great tradition. And so I believe that paleo or, or Afro-Latino Pentecostal orthodoxy or Afro-Latino paleo orthodoxy 
as a theological movement in the 21st century, which returns back to that great tradition, is and will be a great renewal movement. And so if you're under the sound of my voice and you're like, hey, what's the Eucharist? Why communion every week? Why vestments? Why collars? Why the church fathers? Why the creeds? Why the councils? Why liturgy? Why, you know, all of these great things that we have in our tradition? You're probably being called by the spirit um, to this wonderful renewal movement that I'm uh, labeling as an Afro-Latino Pentecostal or Afro-Latino Paleo-Orthodoxy. And I would encourage you to read Africa, how Africa shaped the Christian mind. Um, and then um, you can reach out to me or Lisa, and then we can connect you with other resources as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been a joy to talk to you. And uh, I'm excited for people to watch. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project. Remember, Courageous Conversations is coming up August 1st and 2nd. Don't forget to register. We have Courageous Conversations and Jew 3 Project merch all at Jew3project.com. And if Jew 3 is a, a helpful resource for you, um, consider being a monthly partner. Um, all of this can be done at Jew3project.com. And we'll see you again next week. Remember here at the Jew 3 Project, we're helping you know what you believe and why you believe it. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well so thank you so much for tuning in also remember we have our bible engagement app in partnership with back to the bible to help you get better engaged in the bible every single day you take a survey it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you bible verses based on those so it's a great app you can download the app by searching in your app store or google play searching juke 3 project and it'll be right there for you so thank you again remember if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver you can do so on our website or by mail just go to juke3project.com hit that donate tab and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online we appreciate you and i'm so so thankful for you God bless. And remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.